the response from the union was just extraordinary. I mean, they just standing ovation. It went on and on. They were cheering. They were putting up on stage, talking to us, and a lot of the lot of the guys coming up to me and saying, oh, "Listen, you 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 look like Harry. You sound like Harry. You got to be Harry." Um, and that was a feeling I hadn't really had for quite a while. That's why I wanted to be an actor in the first place. And the thing when you, you come to Los Angeles, and if you're lucky enough to get work in television, you don't very often have that feeling, especially back in the um, 80s and 90s. Um, and it just made, made me hungry. And I, I, what, what research I had done, I had a great admiration for Harry Bridges, and the play was really too expensive to produce because there were too many actors in it. And I thought, well, maybe I'll write a one-man play, and then I can be Harry. And that's how it started. It's your host, Senya. Welcome back to Chasing Artists, where we get to chat with artists and creatives from all walks of life, hearing their journeys of what got them where they are today. But before we dive in to today's episode, just a quick reminder to please subscribe to the show. Whether you're listening on iTunes, Spotify, Audible, Google Play, press that subscribe button so you can stay up to date on episodes. I'm so excited for you to be joining me wherever you are listening. Thank you so much for tuning in every single week to Chasing Artists. Today, we're chatting with actor Ian Ruskin about his solo shows that highlight notable yet often forgotten or misunderstood figures in American and European history, including Harry Bridges, Thomas Paine, and Nikola Tesla. Hi, Ian. Welcome to the show. Yeah, it's great to be here. I was just thinking that this is a real gift to me because it gives me a chance to uh, look back a bit and also look into the future. Yeah, I love that. Every so often, so thank you. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I'm so glad to have you on as a guest. So, and what brought you to performing in the arts to begin with? Oh, uh, I started when I was 11 or 12. we lived in Philadelphia at the time, and there's a wonderful theater there called Stagecrafters, which is still there. And I played um, Patrick in Auntie Mame. And uh, I also did some uh, plays at universities around Philadelphia when they needed an 11- or 12-year-old boy. And I just loved it. It just seemed, it, it seemed natural to me as a thing to do. Um, that's all I can say. I just would go on stage and do whatever I did. But it was just, uh, it was like being home. Yeah. Oh, I get that. That's that's such a feeling. <laughs> that's like that's like when you know, you know, it's just like that feeling of, yeah, this is where I'm supposed to be. That's it. That's powerful. So when did you go to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art? Uh, well, we went back to England and... Um, I auditioned, I, I started in uh, 
the end of 1966. I was very young. I was just 16, which was too young to go officially, but I got in. Um, and I actually auditioned. I auditioned for RADA. I thought, well, this will be a, a, a test run for me because the chances of getting in are very slim. And then I got in. So that was that. I, I went. Yeah. 16 is so young. <laughs> to go. That's awesome, though. But did you what like influenced your decision to to try out? Well, I. I either wanted to be an actor or a singer, folk singer. Uh, bearing in mind, this is the mid sixties. Um, I had a, a a drama teacher who I went to, and she said, "Why don't you audition for?" She suggested rather than one other drama school, just to see what it's like to get used to the the process. Um, and as I say, I, so I auditioned, I got in, and really that that. It's like I was at a fork in the road, and that was the end of my idea of being a folk singer. I was going to become a so I got in. So I went, and it was um, terrifying the first day because you you think, oh, my God, they're all going to be amazing actors except me. And we were all just a bunch of, well, nobody was as young as me, but young people who wanted to be actors. Yeah, you're all kind of in the same boat. Yes. Did you focus on solo performing while you were there, or or did you have more of a, a kind of a well-rounded education there? Your focus was what they created for you. Rather, was like a um, a craft school. You were learning a craft, so you did movement, uh, different kinds of movement. You did different kinds of voice classes. You did makeup, fencing dance, um, period, costume, and you did plays. And it was purely, it was geared to the idea that when you graduate, you would have a good chance of getting work in the theater as an actor. So it's like learning to be a carpenter in a way, except you were learning the craft of acting. So there was almost nothing to do with television at that point. There is now. Um, Makeup was a completely different world to what it is now. It was literally grease paint, the makeup sticks. Um, and you did great plays. And it was all to do with learning. There was no history of theater. It was all practical. So it really was learning a trade. The solo stuff came for me a long time later. So when you graduated, did you jump right into working as an actor? Yeah, I went into rep, which is what, repertory theater, as it's called in America, which is what most English actors did. I first job was at the Bar Theater in St. Andrews, Scotland. Um, I was there for nine months, and then I, I did various rep jobs and then began to work in London, did some television, a little film, but mainly theater. And that was the kind of classic path the young English actor took. So what led you into your solo performing? Um, I was in a, a rep company in Lancaster, in the north of England, and it just happened that there was a gap for me. I, I wasn't in the current show, 
and I wasn't rehearsing for the next show. And so the director said, would you like to do a one-man show just to kind of fill in? And I said yes, and he gave me three scripts, and I picked this one called The Man Himself, which is an extraordinary play um, about a man who's on the point of joining a fascist organization because he's so lost in England. Um, and I did that. I, I did it in that gap. And then a little later, I did it in London. And then when I came to Los Angeles, I quite early on uh, did it here in a, a waiver theater. Um, and it was very successful here. It was very well received. So that was, that's how it began. Again, it wasn't a plan on my part. It was filling in a gap in a rep season. I'm sure this play has been used many times for that. Um, and then I, I kind of put it away because I was beginning to do television here. And I back on my mind for a while. That's so funny. I love how like the things that we often just like stumble into become the things that like we become most passionate about. That I think is so important. It's, well, as we'll I'll come in a minute to the next sort of stages, but that's exactly how my life has gone. Um, it's not been me planning something really as much as something arrives in front. Yeah. Do you say yes or no to it? And hopefully you say yes, because why not? But that's that's kind of how my life has gone. Yeah. Did that take you into the Her creating the Harry Bridges project? Um, what happened was a, a dear friend of mine here was directing a, a, a play written by a wonderful playwright, Rob Sullivan, called Citizenship, the Harry Bridges Story. And it was a, a play about Bridges that focused mainly on his trials. And um, the idea was to do it, it was going to be a rehearsed reading for Harry Bridges Union, because he was a union leader, the ILWU, at their four-year annual conference, which happened to be in Los Angeles. And then we were going to do a video version as well. So we, we did this for his union. And the response, I'd never heard of Harry before I was cuts. And the play had, I think, 12 actors. Um, so the response from the union was just extraordinary. I mean, they just standing ovation it went on and on they were cheering they were coming up on stage talking to us and a lot of the a lot of the guys coming up to me and saying oh, listen you, you you look like harry you sound like harry you got to be harry um and that was a feeling i hadn't really had for quite a while that's why i wanted to be an actor in the first place and the thing when you, you come to Los Angeles, and if you're lucky enough to get work in television, you don't very often have that feeling, especially back in the um, 80s and 90s. Um, and it just made, made me hungry. And I, I what, what research I had done, I had a great admiration for Harry Bridges. And the play was really too expensive to produced because there were too many actors in it. And I thought, well, maybe I'll write a one-man play. And then I can be Harry. And that's how it started. 
That's so cool. I love that. I had no idea whether anything would happen with this. I um, it took me some time to try to act on it because you know I'd never written a play. I'd never done research. I'd never done anything like that. But I kept talking about it, and a friend of mine said, "You know, stop talking. Go, go to." He said, "The California Humanities Council. See if you can get a grant to do this." So I went, and they said, "We don't give grants for plays, but we think this would make a great radio documentary." Hmm. Okay, I'll make a radio documentary, which I'd never done before. And so I did all the research, literally going up and down the West Coast, interviewing these, particularly the pensioners of the union who knew, had known Harry Bridges, because Bridges died in 1989. Um, and I, you know, I recorded them, I edited, I, so I produced it, I narrated it, none of which I'd ever done before. And that was how it all began. You know, and as I'm interviewing people, they're telling me these incredible stories, and I'm thinking, ah, that's going to be in the play. Oh, I love that. What was your what was your research and and like those that pre-production process like and figuring it out? Well, with, with Harry, I was lucky because he, he was he had to say he had died in nineteen eighty nine, but there were still a lot of people around who knew him, and also that nineteen thirty four had been the big strike, been the big moment in his life, really, and in the life of the American labor movement. There were still men and women alive who'd been in that strike. So I literally went up and down the West Coast, because it's a West Coast union, went to their houses. I, I had some scholars who kind of introduced me to people, and also I had the union officials. And I would go with my, at the time it was a DAT recorder, and I would interview them about, tell me about the union, tell me about Harry Bridges, and I get all these incredible stories. So I interviewed the pensioners. I interviewed a number of members of his family. I interviewed the union president, various other union officials. And I, I read, I think, three biographies. But mostly I just took, you know, the spoken word of the people who had known him. Because mm -hmm. they stories. Um, and that's... That's what created the documentary. And it, I would say with play, maybe a third of the stories are actually literally from those interviews. As an example, I interviewed Pete Seeger, the musician Pete Seeger, and he had written a song about Harry Bridges and with the Almanacs, this group, which included Woody Guthrie, they had sung it at the Union Local in San Francisco, with Harry Bridges there. And that story is almost verbatim in the play, because it's a great story. So the play is a mixture of those stories, the things I read, of my own ideas, just all mixed together. How long have you been performing this particular show? Uh, first performances were in 2001, so it's 20 years. Oh, my God. Wow, <laughs> that's so cool. What? Because I'm curious, what like, what was your first performance like versus now, and has has the show evolved and changed, or is it really the same? It's 
fundamentally the same. Um, the, the, the first two performances I did, the first one I did was in Seattle at the University of Washington in a sort of black box theater, which held maybe 60 people. The next performance was in San Pedro, which is where the union is located in Los Angeles, in a theater that holds 1,500 people. And there were a thousand longshore men and women, the union members there. So that was a contrast in itself. The play itself, I mean, I, I make little changes all the time, which I think is always, it's good for me to put a little something new in to make sure that I'm not too comfortable, you know, to kind of keep me on my toes, I think the expression. But the plays, well, initially I only had sound. I then added visual effects. So that was, that was one big change because I got footage of things like the 1934 strike. Um, but apart from that, it's basically the same because it's, it's set in 1965 when Harry Bridges, I walk on and I tell you the story of my life up till 1965. I stop at that point. So um, he doesn't pick up current events. I always do a Q&A and often people ask me about you know, things happening now in the union movement. Um, but the play itself, with little tweaks all the time is fundamentally the play that I wrote originally. That's so cool. Can you talk a little bit about, a little bit more about the research process and also then how that maybe was different for Thomas Paine and Nikola Tesla? Right, well, the first difference is that nobody alive you knew Thomas Paine. <laughs> right. There's no one who knew, well, there's no one now. So. You have a whole different, you have to start from a different place. So there are, there are only two sources. Well, there are three sources. Um, with Payne, it was mainly reading biographies and interviewing scholars. I had five scholars who helped me. Um, mainly I wrote from what I read in books, and then the scholars would read what I'd written and say, oh, no, no, you can't say that. That's not right. You know, they would correct me. Um, you know, bearing in mind that history is always a subjective subject. There's no one specific history about anything. Um, but that was how I, how I did the research for pain. Um, Tesla, I had books I read. I had some scholars. Um, I had, with, with Tesla, I had a couple of scholars academic scholars, and I had a couple of physicists who helped me with some of the science. Now, with Tesla, you have you have on the internet. You have to be really careful. Right. There, there are sites that say that Tesla came from Mars. There are also some that say he came from Venus. <laughs> and he didn't. He was a human being. So you have to, <laughs> well, what you read on the internet, but some of it's very useful. Um, he's such a complicated human being, and there's so much misinformation about him because he was, he lived a weird life. 
that led to people, you know, um, coming up with lots of theories about him. But that's how I do the research. So what's with Thomas Paine and, and Nikola Tesla, what are what's like the structure of each of these shows? Well, I have to confess, they're all very similar. Um, all three of them. That I come out on stage as the character and basically I tell you my story. And I start somewhere near the beginning and I, with Paine and with Tesla, I go to the very end of their lives. Um, with Bridges, as I say, I stop in around 1965. But basically, the scientists, I, I come out and I talk directly to the audience. Um, I'm telling the story. I, and I, I have props and I have my sound and visual effects. But um, it's really, hi, I'm, I'm Nikola Tesla. Here's my story. I was born in, and I just really do it fairly chronologically. With Tesla, I have a another, I have a second character. Wow. A voiceover of a kind of everyman called Johnny G from Long Island. And Johnny G is in the present. And he kind of introduces me and interrupts me sometimes <laughs> and kind of opens and closes the play. Um, so that's one added element with Tesla. But I'm telling my life story. Uh, and obviously the feeling of the place is very different because the stories are so different. But the structure is fundamentally the same. Yeah. How do you, how do you like as an actor approach getting into these characters? I mean, in terms of before performance, Bridges... I can almost just turn him on now because I've done the play at least 300 times. So he's completely in me. But with, with what I do is uh, once I'm in costume, costume I really like, it helps me. Uh, I, I always try to have a few minutes just sitting very quiet in the dressing room. And then it, it happens that with each play, there's an introduction by another voice, which takes two or three minutes, the, first, the opening cue. And I always try to either stand in the wings, if it's a theater or if it's at a hotel, I try to stand at the back of the conference room and I look to, to listen, because they're talking about me, the character. And that also helps me to get into the character. Um, but I think with all three, you know, I, I spent at least a year writing them. And then I've, a pain I've done maybe a hundred times. Tesla's much more recent. Tesla's much newer. Um, but they're really, they get inside you. I mean, I, I think maybe more with a solo piece than being in a play. Uh, partly if you've written it and done the research and also obviously with a solo play, there's just you. So your focus is purely on the one character. You don't have to think about the other actors, the other characters, the parts of the play you're not in, because you're in all of it. 
And so it, it, I think that gives you a, a, a focus. The only thing to focus on is the character, the one single person. Um, so that's really how I get ready. I don't have any, no magic, <laughs> um, just a few minutes to kind of be quiet. Yeah. What's what's the touring and traveling process like and like bringing your shows to different venues as opposed to just having like a residential space? Well, I have to say I, I, I have, I've only done the Bridges and Pain plays once in a run, if you like, of two theaters in Los Angeles. And that was very, very nice because I had someone, I had my assistant who went in and set up each evening, you know, set up the props and furniture, checked everything. I just had to go and get into costume. And that's like being a regular actor, right? However, um, if I had had to do 300 performances of Harry Bridges in a row in the same theater, I would have gone crazy. <laughs> the great thing, the hard thing about traveling now, well, I haven't traveled except I'm only beginning to again, obviously after the pandemic. Um, I, traveling has become a lot harder. It became a lot harder after 9-11. Traveling used to be fun, but, but after 9-11, it became obviously TSA and you couldn't take on drinks. You couldn't take all, all that stuff. Um, but what is what I like is, A, I love going to another city and also... Every place I perform is different. Sometimes it's a theater. Sometimes it's, um, as I say, in a hotel for a union. Sometimes it's um, some society where they just have an open space. So each, each performance has different challenges. I have different furniture. I, tend, I take as many props as I can, but the furniture is always different. Sometimes... I have lighting, sometimes I don't. Um, the technical side, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. I never know who's going to run the cues. So it makes each performance a kind of event for me. Um, I'm not going in and doing what I did last night. So it, it again, it keeps it kind of fresh and each each time I do it, it's unique, and sometimes it's at night, sometimes it's at two o'clock. Occasionally, it's in the morning, which I do not like doing at all. You know, on book, that's when you do it. So you don't have some of those. You don't have a, a schedule. You don't have someone looking after you. I I have. I'm very lucky. I have a girlfriend who travels with me often. Not to not almost recent trip, but um, but still, each each time you have no idea things and things sometimes go wrong. <laughs> so sometimes things go very wrong, but that's okay because that's part of it. And what I've learned is it doesn't really matter what goes wrong, as long as the actor doesn't freeze or freak out that deals with it, the audience love it. And A, often they don't even notice, but if it's something that really they notice, sometimes you have to stop and say something 
and go and fix something. And they love that. So the, my advice to anyone when something goes wrong on stage is it's okay. As long as you don't freak out, the audience won't freak out. They'll not, they love watching you deal with and succeed in some kind of little crisis. They love that. That's, I, I really, well, that's been my experience. Yeah, that's really good advice. So to you, what's the importance of bringing these stories to life? You say that they're notable figures who have been overlooked or forgotten. What's been like the biggest motivator behind choosing each one of these guys to create an entire show around? Uh, well, you know, when I went to Rodden, this young, idealistic actor, um, I wanted to be an actor because I wanted to move people. I wanted to affect people. I wanted, I wanted people to leave the theater with something to think about and to be, to be saying, oh, my God, I do that, don't I? Well, that's, oh, I didn't realize. Well, that's a whole different way of looking at life. And if, with any luck, if you're in good plays, uh, that happens, I think, in the theater. It really doesn't happen in television. It doesn't happen in all plays. And what I found when it began was that story I talked about with Bridges, I, I feel incredibly lucky now that I have these three plays that I, I absolutely believe these were great men. I believe they were working to make the world a better place in different ways. Um, they kind of dedicated their life to that, the pursuit of that, to the pain play, to leave the world a better place Leave at your death, leave the world a better place than it was at your birth. And that's what these three men wanted to do. And I find when I close, I can feel the audience inspired by the stories. And that's a wonderful feeling. Um, I'm also very lucky that, um, certainly with Bridges, pretty much with pain, not quite so often. I'm the only person doing these stories, and the people I do them to are so appreciative of the fact that I do them, right? And, um, you know, if you play Hamlet, the audience is quite likely to say, well, he's good, but I much prefer so-and-so doing Hamlet three years ago, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah, Harry Bridges, because nobody else has done Harry Bridges. And that people are, people thank me for doing it. And they thank me. The stories inspire people. And to me, and I get to go to beautiful cities. I, I perform in some wonderful places, some wonderful venues. Not always. Sometimes I get dressed in a broom closet, literally. But sometimes I'm in a beautiful theater. And I'm, I'm telling these stories that inspire people. And... Um, there's also there's there's something about when you do a, a one one person show, um, you walk out on stage, 
And that's like jumping off a cliff. And you're kind of sailing through the air until it's over. And then it's over and you bow and you do a Q&A or whatever you do. And it's a, it's a very unique experience. It's not like being in a play where you make entrances and exits. I remember being in Lear playing Edgar. And Edgar is the one who's on the heath and gets becomes this grotesque kind of savage. And I'm covered in mud. And I was off long enough during the play to go and shower and get into the costume of Edgar when he returns as the prince. So that's a very different experience. To go off stage, take a shower, get into another costume, go back on stage, to walking on stage until it's over. And I love that feeling. It's very exciting. And also there's nobody else to help you. No other actor, there's nobody else to supply any energy. You know, if you're in a play and you're kind of a bit off one day, hope that the cast kind of lifts you up a bit. Um, there's none of that. And I really love that. It's, uh, it's like flying. It's like flying through the air or something. I don't know what the right image would be. But um, once you take off, until you land at the end, you're just up there. Yeah, that's powerful. I like that. So do you want to talk a little bit more about uh, the Nikola Tesla show? Yes. <laughs> For hours. Um, it's, uh, ah, it's been my great challenge. Actually, people, people ask me, are you going to write another play? And I say, only if Tesla doesn't kill me first. And <laughs> thing is with Tesla, Apart from the fact that he was a very, very unusual human being, that's, that's okay. The thing is, he was an absolute genius. I mean, he was a genius, one of the greatest in history. And he, his mind worked in ways so far beyond my mind. And he thought about science, and he thought about the universe, in ways that it's really hard for me to understand. So the great challenge has been to, A, to realize I cannot cover his entire life in 60 or 70 minutes. That's impossible. To pick out the things that are the most important. And then how do I, how do I tell them to an audience? How do I explain an alternating current induction motor in 60 seconds? It was an invention that changed the world but how do I explain it to you in 60 seconds? So I, I have a little video I found, but it's those kinds of challenges. And how do I, how do I get hold of his vision? His great vision was he was going, he believed he could give free electrical power wirelessly to the entire world, unlimited quantities. Now, what a vision is that? The scale of that is, is breathtaking. Um, it actually happens that what a lot of what he was talking about is now there's this whole huge project about nuclear fusion, not, not nuclear fission, nuclear fusion, 
which is about harnessing the power of the sun, basically. It's the biggest electrical or engineering project in the history of the world. It's going on for 40 years. It involves about 120 countries. Tesla was talking about that nearly 100 years ago. I mean, it's quite extraordinary, the man. So it's been a real challenge with Tesla to... Uh, the man, I feel the being I've kind of got my own sense of, scientists I will be exploring for the rest of my life. But that's great. Tesla play really will continue to grow, I think, because I'll discover something new about the science of him. But yeah, the Tesla plays, um, I think it's very exciting, but it's, uh, it's the biggest challenge so far. Yeah. And this one you mentioned has more media than the other two? Yes, it has. Um, well, it, it doesn't, it, it's, Bridges also has quite a lot of cues, but the thing with Tesla is I use some cues, as I say, to try and explain something that's very hard to explain in words. So by having a visual cue, that helps the audience understand what I'm talking about. So that's why they're particularly important for Tesla. The other thing I found was I, I found that music is inspired me when I was researching and writing. Um, and I, I used music of Mozart and Tchaikovsky, as well as I have an incredible original soundtrack from a good friend, Joe Romano. Um, but music is, is, is very important to me in telling the story because it helps to kind of set the scene. Um, and I end the play, I don't want to give away too many secrets, but I end the play with a, basically a scroll of the things that Tesla either invented or inspired, and it is breathtaking. That's all I'll say about that. But um, so the cues really help to give, to give you, the audience, a visual understanding of some of the things I'm talking about. That's cool. So before we jump to final five, uh, is there anything that I didn't ask about that you want to share? Oh, I'll, I'll say one thing. One thing that during, during the, the, the pandemic, during the lockdown, I've been very lucky that I basically, I'm writing, I'm working on a, uh, a screenplay slash television um, pitch deck slash whatever for Thomas Paine. Work on that a lot. I've been very lucky that I, I think writers have been lucky in this lockdown slash pandemic that they, we can continue to write. We have to find money somewhere to survive. But that's been a great, in a way, it's been a great thing for me to kind of step back and really go a little deeper. On the other hand, I really want to be a performance again. So that's where I am in this moment. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So um, final five is technically speed round, but it's totally fine if it's not. Um, question one, you kind of talked about this, but do you have a pre-show ritual? It's just that a little time by myself. I used to have a pre-show ritual of a glass of red wine. Nice. A long time ago. Uh, apart from that, uh, yeah, a little time alone, 
little time listening to those first introductions. That's it, really. Second question, what's your favorite thing about performing? Oh, that jumping off the cliff. Um, and having that hour or however inhabiting some extraordinary human being. And then at the end of it, obviously, people clap. That's lovely. And then I love doing the Q&As to get people's questions, which are wonderful, wonderful questions. It's, it's a real connection with, I don't work with actors anymore, but I have one, two, three hundred people I'm working with. It's great. Question three, what advice do you have for solo performing? Uh, you don't ever have to feel lonely because you have the audience. You don't have actors, but the audience are the rest of the cast. And that's certainly for me, because I talk directly to the audience. I always have the lights on slightly so I can see them a little. You don't have to feel alone. I love that. Question four, what's the best piece of advice you were given? <laughs> well, the best piece of advice I gave myself, actually, I don't know where it came from. I was going to perform Harry Bridges in 1965. He wears a blue suit. Um, I was walking to a performance in San Francisco. It was, I was too far from where I was staying to go back. And I realized I had forgotten my shoes. <laughs> I was wearing white Stan Smith tennis shoes. Now, any actor who's been in that situation, you completely freak out, right? Oh, my God, I can't go back. What do I do? How can I do the show? And a voice said to me, it's only a play. What are they going to do? Kill you? Be <laughs> free. And what I did I had a line early on in the play about memory and how, as the older you get, the more you can't remember. And I, I did it in my socks, and I put up a, a foot and said, "Today, I, I even forgot to bring my shoes." <laughs> and I went on with the play. So that, that I have often said that to myself, and I say it to people. If, I'm, if I arrive at a new place and somebody has to run the queues who hasn't really done it before, I say, don't worry. If he goes wrong, it's just a play. No one's going to die. No one's going to shoot us. It's okay. And that's the best piece of advice I've ever heard. It just happens to have come from a little voice inside my head. <laughs> I love that. All right, last question. Do you have a quote or favorite saying that really resonates with you? No, it's, a, it's probably the most famous quote from Thomas Paine which is we have it in our power to begin the world over again. And I find that so inspiring. And in, it's a huge quote. And you could say, well, that's ridiculous. We can't just change the world, but we can in some way, little ways. We can change our world. You never know, you do something that might lead to something else. It's very empowering. I think it's a most wonderful optimistic idea and it's a great purpose to have in life to begin the world over again so i love that quote. that is a great way to end the episode i love that thank you so much for chatting and being here with us this has been awesome you're very welcome thank you for doing this
Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you have enjoyed your time today. Please take a minute to press that subscribe button on iTunes, Spotify, Audible, Google Play. And if you liked today's episode, please rate and leave a review. It would mean so much to me and it helps more listeners like you find this podcast. You can connect with our guests and myself on social media. All of our information and more is listed in the description of this episode. I'm your host, Senya. See you next time. Thank you.